Well, guys, I think we should go ahead and get started because I know that most of you want to get right back out into the fog just as quickly as you can today. Um, there's a lot going on. Um, did everybody get a, a sheet? There's a little two-sided piece. If you don't have one, we got a couple left. Usually there's about 350 guys that show up at something like what we did this morning, and I figured there's seven of us. I did the math, but I did it wrong. <laughs> but it looks like there was more like 500 guys today. Um, so, thanks to Mike who went out and put all this together quickly. Uh, made me some additional copies. I appreciate it. Um, we're here to talk about leadership. Um, leader shaping is what I refer to it as. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Uh, but before we jump into all of it, would you just bow your head with me, please? Father, this morning we come, and we come in your name. Uh, and we come as men who um, know that you gifted us, and you've experienced us in very unique ways. So Father, this morning, uh, may you, in your words, have your way with these men. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A um, couple of things. First off, um, this is great. I'm thrilled to be able to do this. Uh, I don't get a chance to do this often enough. And when I do, um, I sometimes pity you because I, I, I'm up here and you're there. You've got to listen. I have a captive audience. But uh, I hope you get something out of this today. Um, leader shaping is something I've become very, very passionate about over the last decade or so. Uh, and what I find is, while there are many great leaders in a church like this, there is a huge vacuum of leaders around the world. And the more I travel the world, the more I recognize the size of the vacuum for good leaders, good spiritual leaders around the world. So, um, I, I basically only have three things I want to try to convey today, and they're already on your paper, and for those of you who've been sitting for a while, you probably already have it. Um, so, if you need to leave early, I'll understand. But uh, ultimately, just a little bit about who I am and how I got here, because I probably don't know most of you. Um, my name is Chris Dornboss. I'm the husband to Trudy for 27 years this coming November. Uh, the father to a 25-year-old daughter named Sheena. The father-in-law to uh, a 26-year-old young man named Mark. Um, I'm also the father to a 22-year-old son named Justin, who's with us in Colorado Springs. He's going to UCCS. Uh, my daughter graduated Calvin, which was my alma mater, so now you know my theology. Um, although being at New Life has really challenged that, and I'm loving it. Um, I came after about 22 years with a company called Zondervan, which is kind of a clunky Dutch name, like Dornboss is a clunky Dutch name. Only Zondervan, as a clunky Dutch name, means no name. <laughs> so I worked for this company, this no-name company, for about 22 years uh, when I was recruited to come to Cook. And I wasn't going to come, um, didn't want to come, but my wife said, uh, Chris, I think the sun and the moon and the stars are lining up on this. How long are you going to fight God on this one? So I came thinking this is going to be great, and it's been the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. But I have never felt so fulfilled as I do these days, um, and not just about my work, 
I'm grateful for meaningful work, as we all are, uh, if we can get it these days. But um, God has really been shaping me through this process, and I've had the privilege to come alongside of other guys here in Colorado Springs in ways that I never did in all the years that I was in Michigan. And coming alongside of other guys who had been down the road before I was, long before I was running into things, these guys were running into things, and they helped me navigate things that I would have just blown up on my own over. So I'm kind of passionate about this whole thing, and um, I hope you get something out of it today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what what leadership is, what a leader does, and what the leadership being process is. Um, those three things. That's it this morning. Um, first off, though, a little bit about what some others are saying about leadership. You know, most of us have leadership quotes that we've read somewhere along the line because most guys are a lot more articulate than I am. I use their quotes. Um, but they really do have some good things to say about leadership. And there are some great books, if you read books, I would really encourage you to read all you can get your hands on about leadership. Um, Because ultimately, it's not whether you lead a company, it's whether you lead a family. Whether you're leading your friends. Um, Leading a company can be a bonus or a curse. Um, But leading your family is your responsibility. So, a couple of things that are um, on the sheets there. But leadership is influence. The ability of one person to influence others towards God's purpose. I think that's a great way of saying what it is we're trying to do. There's lots of details and other things that we're getting at, but at the end of the day, it's towards God's purposes as Christians. And then Henry Blackaby said, Christian leaders who know God and who know how to lead in a Christian manner will be phenomenally more effective in their world than even the most qualified and skilled leaders who lead without God. I see a couple of you nod on that, but that's a big deal to me. I, there are some very significant leaders in this world who have done some amazing things without God. So if you think about what we could do with God as leaders, in our own right, our families, our friends, our businesses, um, as Brady said this morning, don't be intimidated. Um, But I want to talk first about the uh, three things that we want to do. What a leader is, what a leader does, and what the leader shaping process means. But uh, I want to talk from Chronicles 16.9. For those of us who are leaders, and really are following Christ, I think 2 Chronicles 16.9 says something important to us, because it says, The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth, to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Brady's all in words keep ringing in my ears. Are we all in or aren't we? Um, I hope we are. For lots and lots of reasons. D. Hawk was a clinical psychologist who actually was the founder and CEO of the Vista Credit Card uh, Association quite some time ago. He's been retired for a long time. Um, But he wrote an article um, that I picked up maybe 15 years ago. It was called The 360 Degree Leader. Now, John Maxwell, if you know that name, wrote a book. He took a two-page article and made it 256 pages. Authors do that, trust me. They, they do that. 
what I read, when I first read it, bent my mind, because here was the question, and the illustration on the page is a compass, north, east, west, and south. And the question is, how much of your leadership time is spent managing or leading north? People you report to, people in position above you. How much time of your leadership time now is spent leading people who are your peers, laterally? If you're thinking about numbers and you have a pencil, just jot one down on the left side. North, how much time do you spend leading those who are above you? How much time do you spend leading those who work laterally with you? And how much of your leadership time is spent leading those who are subordinate? Don't you love that word? Subordinate. People who may work for you. People who may be your children. Usually what he found is about 10% up top, 10 to 15% laterally, 70% below. And what he says is you missed the whole point. Because at the center of the compass is you. And you should be spending 50% of your leadership time, whatever that means to you, leading you. Now that makes the math on north, east, south, and west quite different. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read that article, that just kind of bent my mind. I thought, that's a great idea, but how do you, come on. I stuck it in a drawer, and it sat there for almost five years. In fact, it took, me, it took a move out of my house for me to pull that out of my drawer again. But it really is an important piece. And I think ultimately what we're saying here is leaders are learners. And that's just to get you started. What are you doing to lead you? Otherwise, everybody else you lead is only going to get as far as you are. Which may be good. But you could do more. If you just paid more attention to yourself. In an unselfish way. I just found that a very interesting concept and I wanted to share that one because I think ultimately it sets the stage for what we do. Because there's a huge vacuum for leaders. Um, I left a couple of verses here in Ezekiel 20, 22, um, and then Isaiah 59. Let me just read both of these for us. It's Ezekiel 22, 30, and Isaiah 59, and I'm just going to work through some of this. Here's Ezekiel 22:30. It says, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. I will pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their heads all they have done, declares the Sovereign Lord. So he's looking around for people, but in some places he can't find them. I've been to some of those places around the world. The second one is uh, in Isaiah. Isaiah 1 and 2 says, uh, Surely the arm of the Lord is too short to save, nor, I'm sorry, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Thank you. I suddenly had this flashback when I was in kindergarten. Somebody gave me the King James Bible and said, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I thought, if he's my shepherd, how come I don't want him? So you've got to get the negatives right. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. 
But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. In verse 10, it goes on to say, Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. Verse 14, So justice is driven back, and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the street, and honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. We're a long ways, I believe, in this country, and there's a lot to be said about where we are today and where we were in the past and the trajectory we're on for the future. But I still believe we're a long ways from no leaders. If only we'd act. So, this huge leadership vacuum is concerning me. In business, um, we long for people of character and competence. In politics, we want people who are really ready to serve. But what we get are politicians. And CEOs who are more concerned about their compensation and their golden parachute than the people who serve the organization. And we all know organizations are only as good as the people who work there. There's a white-collar crime going on all over the place when you can come into a company for $30 billion or a $30 billion company and then leave it in an absolute mess and walk out with hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation. I call it white-collar crime. Just that not too many people go to jail for it. But it happens. Are those leaders? Brady reminded us the other day, and he talks about churches, and he says, you know, if you don't teach people to worship, you're going to have to entertain them. Right? Tozier is who he was quoting. He said, and by the way, uh, Brady does, you know, fill in the blanks. I was going to do that. My assistant said, Chris, if you're going to do this yourself, don't let them fill in the blanks. Let them look for the typos. <laughs> There's the first one. <laughs> Tozer was sad when he said it, but, it, but what we're really talking about is what Tozer said. That if you don't teach people to worship, You'll have to entertain them. And the ministry organizations are struggling these days. Uh, I know. Um, I'm part of one. If you're relying on donations, particularly from high net worth and foundations, uh, it's tough. It's tough these days. Um, and often what we see, even in ministries, and there are a couple million of them just in the United States, by the way, um, that are more interested in how they raise money than how they more effectively accomplish the, min- the mission. I'm not saying they're not concerned about effectively accomplishing a mission, but they need to raise funds. And frankly, a lot of them are raising funds the same way other nonprofits that aren't spiritual organizations are raising funds, and it's not working any better for them. So there's a vacuum out there, whether it's in business, politics, ministry, um, churches, 
there are vacuums. But I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm an optimistic realist. The glass is half full for me. So there's always opportunities for us to do what God called us to do if we just get out of our chairs and do it. I don't think we're going to hell in a handbasket. I really don't. Absolutely. Thank you. So, why, why do people want to be leaders in the first place? Some people, a lot of people actually, aspire to be a leader. And ultimately, I think many of them I've run into over the years want to be a leader for what they can get. So you get power, you get control, you get perks, you get prestige. But a spiritual leader is all about giving, not getting. And ultimately, we're giving power away. When a leader gives power away, he's done what we call now empowering his people. He's not keeping it for themselves. That's the way we used to manage, though. Helping others solve problems. Helping other people to learn how to solve problems and make decisions is a role a leader has to play, or they're stuck with it. And you all know the story of Moses. It took Jethro, who I called the butt kicker, to explain that, you know, Moses, you can't handle all this stuff. You shouldn't handle all this stuff. Figure out how to delegate this. Give your power away. And he did. It's a good model. So, uh, then there are the times. Um, I used to have to travel to New York pretty regularly, and there was always this New York minute. And then there was the New York nanosecond. Um, I'm referring to time these days as 21st century time. The revolution we're seeing in technology, um, I don't know about you, but uh, I carry a cell phone. By the way, um, I've flipped from a PC to a Mac, so if I seem a little schizophrenic, I am. <laughs> um, I also went out, because I'm kind of in the content world, um, I had the Kindle, just bought an iPad. Uh, I think they have something there, by the way, that the Kindle wasn't. But the point is, these little devices can make us much more efficient, and they can drive us crazy at the same time. And ultimately, we talk about the digital revolution, we talk about the unrelenting information technology era. We've got more information than we can possibly cram into our minds. The information technology gives us just gigabytes after gigabytes after gigabytes. I thought to myself when I bought the phone, it's a 16 gig, no problem. Problem. I need a 32. <laughs> of course. Publishing. There's just a parade of one book after another book about whatever the subject is. You can't... There were 769,000 titles, new titles, in 2009. And those were just the ones that were self-published. There were another 953 on top of the 726,000. Another 953,000. So, information, overload, filters, all kinds of things here. Um, and it makes it a, a real challenge for all of us but frankly, they all promise something easy. All you got to do is follow five easy steps, and you'll be successful. Okay, just find the right book out of the million and six, and well, the one with the right five steps, and you win. But ultimately, I think Gordon Sullivan um, <clears throat> and Michael Harper said it best. 
And by the way, I've been misquoting the name of this book, which is Hope is Not a Method. But I like my quote better, so if I write a book someday as a publisher, uh, I probably won't. But uh, if I wrote a book, I'd say Hope is Not a Strategy. But in their book, Hope is Not a Method, they suggest that the defining characteristic of the information and technology aid is not speed, but the compression of time. It's not so much that events are moving faster, there's just simply less time for leaders to respond to events than there used to be. You know, we as leaders used to be able to get stuff and get information and stew on it. And it was Colin Powell that had that 40-80 rule. He said, until you get at least 40% of the information you need to make a decision, please don't make one, people will die. But if you wait beyond the point of 80%, please don't do that either because people are going to die. So somewhere between 40 and 80 is where you launch out. You never have all you need. But the 40-80 rule is a pretty good one. The problem is we now have to respond so much quicker. And I don't know about you, but I feel that every day. And it's not just because of my email. So, then there's things like making time. We all talk about making time to do things, but there's a difference between making and taking time. How many of you make time to pray every day, and how many of you take time to pray every day? No, just kidding, sort of. But how many, how many of us make time to spend with our families, and then how many of us actually take that time? I do lots of things in my office where I make out time, I start carving out time so that I can just go walk around the building. Guess what? The fire came up over here, I got to walk over here and put this fire out. I, I didn't walk around the building. It happens to us all the time. It makes it difficult. But, take time, once you make time, to do all you can. Realize you can't do it all. Nobody can. But I think too that one of the things that I love about leaders and the fact that we're all sitting in this room talking about leader shaping is the fact that we can benefit from the wisdom we collect from others. Now that's not true about everybody on everything. I'm not going to go to these four people on that subject because I know these four can help me and I'm not sure those four can. There's, a, there's some wisdom in knowing who to collect wisdom from as opposed to just sit down spill it all out and hope they'll clean it up but proverbs 15:22 says plans fail for lack of counsel but with many advisors plans succeed when i first came to this church by the way um, it was six months before ted left so while he was still here i went to what they call a new attenders thing and he said okay before I tell you why to join the church, let me tell you why not to. Don't join it for the great preaching. I'm not a great preacher. Don't join it for the, the worship music because it's you know just lots of dry ice and stuff. It's really cool. It's entertaining. And then he gave a couple other reasons why not to. But he said, let me tell you why I think you should come to new life. He said, there's enough people here for you as an individual or a couple to connect with so that you'll never have to fail at anything God has called you to do. I don't get too many blinding flashes of the obvious, but that was one for me. When he left, I didn't care who was coming next. I wasn't following Ted Haggard. I'm not following Brady Boyd. I just decided to pound the stake in really far down and hook myself up to it and weather the storm. 
and I come from a Reformed background, I still think God's smiling. <laughs> so, the counsel of many. Um, the other thing that, while leaders are learners, leaders are readers. And um, there's a lot of different things being said about um, people reading less than ever before. Well, I suppose that's true if you look at the number of books that are being sold, but I would argue people are, are reading more than ever before. Magazines, internet, I got an app for that. They're reading more than ever before. Wherever you go in the world, you're talking to somebody today or tomorrow that's more informed than they were three, four, five, ten years ago. Cherits. Cherits. C-H-E-R-I-T-S. Exactly. <laughs> Number two. Now, this is the story of Elijah. You can read it out of 2 Kings. Cherith means to be cut off or to cut down. Anybody ever been there? Anybody there? Or are they all in the broken class? Uh. <laughs> this is part of the process. And, you know, you can imagine Elijah, he's in the face of the king, right? So Judah's got a king for 41 years. In the same period, Israel had eight. Judah was moving closer to God the whole time. Israel was moving away from God the whole time. But Ahab's the king, and Elijah gets to be the prophet. Now, if you're Elijah, and you have a table at the, uh, at the king's table, you have a place at the king's table, man, your ministry is happening. You're in front of the king. And you're in front of the king without trying to be too intimidated, because what you're really saying to him is, you know what, you're screwing this up. So he's thinking he's at the top of his game and God calls him out. Remember the story? He's got to hang out at the brook of Cherith and the ravens have to feed him. He's there for a couple of years. The brook dries up. So we go from bad to worse. He goes to visit a widow. The widow's kid dies. She thinks he's the reason. He's wondering, why am I so cursed? I believe the times that we go through that are the most difficult in our life are the ones that produce the most fruit. I don't see his face here, but most of us know Vince Dacchioli. His wife went into the hospital November 2nd. She's still there. She's a lot better. But during that time, from walking pneumonia to N1H1 to she's not going to make it, Vince, and he's known her since he was 18. Those are tough times. But he's about to start looking at those in the rearview mirror. Like the rest of us, God didn't put us through something that killed us. It might have broke us. We might have gone broke. But it didn't kill us. And what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. It's just that we don't like to hear it when we're in it. But it's true. And it's part of the shaping process. It's what God does. He did it on purpose. Scripture talks about um, 
how difficult this is. But Frederick Brotherton, F.B. Meyer, uh, said, Every saintly soul that would yield power with men must win it through some hidden cherith. It's true. And the larger your leadership is, I think there's a correlation to the struggles that you're going to have. I think there's a reason for it. So, there's some other scripture about consider it pure joy. Yeah, right. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And then Peter talks about, don't be surprised by these trials. Is this something strange is happening to you? Why does this have to happen to me? Because it's by design. One of my favorite songs we actually sang this morning, Everlasting God, written by um, Breton Brown. I know Breton. We spent some time together. Happens to be a song our music company owns. Love that. (laughs) But his story as a South African who moved to Oxford, England, became a Rhodes Scholar, was educated, wanted to be a pastor, felt he was called to being a pastor. He and his wife both got sick, and they stayed sick for two years. Ravens weren't bringing them food. But he and his wife moved back in with their parents, back in South Africa, and they wondered, God, what are you doing? And that's how Everlasting God was birthed. They brought him out of that. He's now a musician and a pastor. He's still a Rhodes Scholar. Um, But his music is blessing people all over the world. Do you know that Everlasting God was the most performed song in North America in 2007, as measured by ASCAP, which I call the music police, they always, they're tracking where all the music is being played. That's why you can't sing the normal happy birthday in a restaurant. It's copyrighted. The most sung, most performed song in North America was Everlasting God. So, God is up to stuff. So, that's just the precursor. Let's quickly run through what a leader is. There's some quotes here. Essentially, we talk about leadership is... The art of getting someone else to do something you want done because he wants to do it. Dwight Eisenhower. Leadership is communicating to people their worth and their potential so clearly that they see it in themselves. The truth is that any, anybody can shape their leadership skills beyond their current level. And a good analogy is the development of the muscular system. The central task of leadership is influencing God's people towards God's purposes. Robert Clinton. Influencing is really one of the key components to leadership. You know it. We all know it. In the Leadership Challenge, Cross and Posner wrote... What we discovered time after time after time is that leadership is a process that ordinary people use when they're bringing forth extraordinary things from themselves. And I think about Brady's message this morning about David. Ordinary people bringing forth extraordinary things from within themselves. I have a good friend who's the uh, 
CEO at General Motors. I know you're thinking the chief executive officer, but he's the chief engineering officer. We have fun with that one. Um, he's been through, and really still is in his Cherith moment. He works in the uh, tech center in Warren, Michigan, where they had 8,000 engineers. They now have 3,000. This has to happen on his command. It's not pretty, but this guy's about leadership, and his quote, and I just use it here, everything rises and falls on leadership. Terry Wachowski, chief engineering officer at General Motors. You know, this little word, leadership, we hang a lot on. We talk about character and commitment and chemistry and com charisma and integrity, competence, results. We put a lot on this word leadership to people who are in leaders. And frankly, there are a lot of them that can't live up to it. And as leaders, we often feel we're not up to it. But our expectations for leaders are higher, and they should be. Shouldn't they? Would you agree that we should hold leaders to a slightly higher standard? A position of leadership is a position of responsibility. It may be a privilege, but it's a responsibility more than it is a privilege. And they should be held higher. That's why when they fall, they fall hard. Really hard. But one of the things that I thought would just be helpful, this is something I learned a long time ago. It's called the competence continuum. Because you know what? All of us learn this way. And everybody that would work for us, including um, people who don't work for us, if you're a, in a volunteer organization, or if you're raising children, they don't work for you. They can do what you tell them. But ultimately, on the far left side of that competence continuum is what we call the unconsciously incompetent. It means I don't know what I don't know. Remember the old saying, what you don't know can't hurt you? Not true. Not true. But if you move farther to the right, that's where things get really uncomfortable because now you're consciously incompetent. Now you know that there's something you, you really don't know. And you need to learn it. And we talked about the technology revolution earlier. Just the way that's changing our lives at home, let alone at work, means there's a lot for us to learn. Now, there may be a lot we don't know. But essentially, once we become aware of something, we're now consciously incompetent. We've we got to get out of there. That's not a good place to be. So we try to go right. And what we try to do is get consciously competent. That means we have to work at it. Remember when you first went to drive the car? They had to tell you. Put the key in the ignition. You know, put the brake on before you put it in gear. There was a whole process. And for the first time, I drove my first dump truck at 12, so I remember this. But I just remember for the first time there, there was this process, and then at some point in time I wasn't even thinking about it. I learned how to do it, and now I don't even think about it, and that's the unconsciously competent. And once we get to that place, we simply go pick something else up and come this way with it. Time after time after time. Whether it's how to be a good husband, how to be a good father, how to be a good technician. That's what we do. It's how we learn. So, let's talk a little bit about what a leader does. There are three points here that, for me, were revolutionary. They may not be for you, so forgive me, but for me, they were. What a leader does is provide clarity, crystal clarity on all kinds of things. And, and the, the W plus W divided by P plus V equals CC... Don't you just love that? 
yeah, it's not calculus, but it's what plus y over purpose plus value equals crystal clarity. You may think you know what you want done, but do the people around you, are they really clear on what it is you're trying to do? Do they know why? Because if they know what and they don't know why, you still haven't made a lot of progress these days. People need to know why. You know this. Purpose. What's the purpose of all this? Isn't that the same as the what and the why? Sort of. Sort of. But not quite. It's important. And that's why purpose plus the value. Who, who gets value from it? All of those things tied together will give you crystal clarity. And once your people get clear, whether it's your family or your business, I'm really clear on this. I've tripped over this for years because I thought to myself, I know. It's not, I mean, this isn't rocket science. We're not in neurosurgery. It's not what we do here. We're in publishing. Come on, get some print on some paper. Let's go. But if they're not crystal clear, it slows you down. The other piece of this is focused strategy. FI is focused intensity over T time. Focused intensity over time. This, this is a key concept. The, the little organization that I'm a part of has a book business, a curriculum business, a Canadian distribution business, and a UK music business that's now coming to the US. Okay, simple enough. Um, and then we have this global mission thing that uses all the resources to go around the world. Okay, I get it. But, but if we just pull off Kingsway, which is the music business in the UK, there's four pieces to that. And then you take those four pieces, and there's three pieces to each of those, and it's like, wait a minute, this thing's a lot more complex. I was trying to keep it simple. Remember Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book, a book called Blank? Basically what he said is, um, the only way to make it simple truly simple is to understand the complexity and that takes time. In fact, his latest book that's a book ago, isn't it? Outliers says it's going to take you 10,000 hours. Do the math. If you work 2,080 hours a year, it's five years. But focused intensity. You can't do everything. What do you really want to do? Remember Curly? City Slickers? The movie. Right. And it's for you to find out, remember? That's but focus strategy is as focused intensity over time multiplied by God. If you commit this to God, you can do some incredible things and you get people to own it. Again, there's all this stuff off to the side is be clear about your mission, your goals, your roles, your outcome. And focused strategy, people have to have ownership. You have to make sure they're capable. And that they have a clear path to execution. And then lastly, is the outcomes. What's the M times strategy? Sorry? FI over T times G equals M. M. Thank you. M. Miracles. Momentum. Once your, once your organization, whatever it is, has momentum, it's hard to stop. You're familiar with Jim Collins, good to great, and the flywheel concept. He... he tries to get you to envision this 10-story cast iron flywheel that doesn't move until you really put some energy behind it with six guys and it goes slow and slow and then you get to uh, Sam Walton at Walmart was asked once when they were 45 billion, their 
248 billion, I think now, but at 45 billion, the question was, what was the silver bullet, Sam? How did you guys get? He said, we just, uh, just grabbed his hat and said, we just got a bunch of good people that got after it and stayed after it. And they're still after it. There was no one silver bullet, but momentum. Once that flywheel starts to go, try and stop it. That's why the focused intensity is so important. And it's not just a strategy. Oh, I have a piece of paper. We all know what to do. Good. But how focused is it really? Lastly, execute for outcomes. What are you monitoring? If you go back to what you're doing, why you're doing it, the purpose and the value of it, there should be something right up in there that will help you understand whether or not it's really getting done. You've heard the old saying, what gets measured gets done. What doesn't get measured doesn't get done. So how are you measuring what it is you do? Our currency where I work is transformation. It's not transaction. Now, we've got to make some money along the way. We've got to make sure that things are flowing. But ultimately, it's transformation. Now, some people in our organization wonder if you can actually monitor transformation. Isn't that God's job? Holy Spirit's job. But essentially, if we're creating all this, because our mission statement is to equip the church with Christ-centered resources for making and teaching disciples who obediently transform today's generations. Now, if we made all the equipment and people were using it, as disciples do, but there was no transformation, then aren't we just busy? What's the point? So, those three things for me were breakthrough primarily because I had to be clearer about what it was we were doing and why we were doing it, the purpose for it all, and who was receiving the value. Now, once you know that, you have an outcome you can monitor. That's huge. And most people I've ever met, and I've had the privilege to meet and work alongside of a lot of people in a lot of different organizations, most people never string those together very well. And if you don't get the first one right, the other two really don't matter much. So, let's talk just briefly and lastly about the leadership process, the leader shaping process. Um, I didn't talk about that. I, I didn't say how, I just said that we did, and it is difficult. Um, for example, I'll give you one example. Church planting is a big deal for those of you in ministry. Church planting around the world, when we go to India, we see them all over the place. So the question isn't how effective were we? Did we plant a church? Because you come back two years from the time you planted a church, is it still there? So you may be effective planting a church. How long did it stay? That's a monitoring factor, but ultimately what we're looking now, and if you're a foundation and you're giving grants for that, what you're really looking for are third generation churches. A church that got planted, that planted a church, that planted a church. If you can follow that strand, you've monitored something that really is effective, as opposed to I planted a church and I'm really good at this because I put a thousand of them out there. Two years later, who's there? That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. What does it stand for? I, I didn't get it. 
Value? W plus W slash P plus... Value. Value. Thank you. D is for value. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I know we're trying to do this in 45 minutes instead of an hour. I got four minutes to go and we're going to make it. That's the good news. Um, the leader shaping process. You know, we talked about the vacuum for leaders. We talked about the cherits that leaders go through. Uh, we talked about what a leader is and what a leader does. But ultimately, like life, it's a lifelong learning process, isn't it? It always is. Whether you're leading a family or leading an organization that's a million dollars or a billion dollars or $248 billion, it's a process. Leaders are learners and teachers. At some point as consumers, we want to learn all that we can learn so that we can do whatever it is we do and do it well. A husband, a father, uh, a Sunday school teacher, uh, a technician, um, an editor. We want to do those well so we learn whatever we can. But in the leader shaping process, the other word that I tend to use, I, I, this is all about leader shaping, but there's a whole other thing about disciple shaping over here. In the disciple shaping process, we want to learn. I don't know how many of you are mentors to someone. I don't know how many of you are being mentored by someone. But I was with a guy, um, I'll just use his first name, Greg. Some of you may know Greg Campbell. There's his second name. He ran a little thing called Caldwell Bankers Realty for a lot of years. He took it over when it was in trouble. He built it into what it is today, really, and walked away from it about five years ago because it was consuming his life. He's an exceptionally bright guy. Having breakfast with him years ago, I realized that after talking with this brilliant, successful guy, that he was leaving my breakfast to go be mentored by someone else. And he had four people who were mentoring him. And he had a reason for each one of those four. So I said, well, that's really interesting. Do you, do you mentor people? Yes. He had eight mentors, or eight people he was mentoring. Yeah. I guess when you make all that money and retire, you have some time, right? <laughs> But I would really encourage you as, as leaders who are learners and teachers that you need to put yourself into a position. I found this out the hard way. I didn't do this until I got in a corner. So if you're not in a corner, you're ahead of me. But if you can find somebody to mentor you and you can find people to mentor, you talk about the fulfillment of life and satisfaction. And it's the right people. It's not just anybody. God will bring them to you, by the way, if you let them. If you keep your eyes open, they'll come to you, and you will find those who can mentor you. But I, if you get nothing else out of this, can you be a mentor, and are you being mentored? It's the community of guys, and it's the second word, and I, I'm hearing all this at New Life about worship, connect, and serve. So if you get nothing else out of this, connect. Be a mentor be mentored. But, what we say is the leader brings three things quickly. He comes hungry. That's a good thing in leaders. You know, I used to be a sales manager 
uh, for a little company in Michigan. And my boss used to say, so when are you going to buy a bigger house? I think, I know I hadn't, you know, I, uh, I, whenever I get a raise. He said, no, 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 no. Go ahead, because I was getting paid on commission. Right? Have a big mortgage, make the guy hungry, keep the guy hungry, right? Got to feed the animal every day. So they come hungry, They're, but they come hungry with drive and passion. The next one is honable, which basically says, are you teachable? Have you met leaders who really aren't teachable? All they want to do is teach. Who wants to work for them? Um, and then honorable. I mean, integrity is the integration of belief and behavior. We don't always get that right. What we believe is not always the way we behave, but integrity, simply put, is the integration of belief and behavior. If you're hungry and you're honorable and you're honorable, you can be a good leader. And my experience is that everybody I've ever met who was really a good leader was at one time in their life a really good follower. If you were never really a good follower, I would argue you don't know how to be a good leader. Not that you can't be, but you wouldn't know how. You'd need to learn. So, it's a simple illustration. It comes from a book called Launching a Leadership Revolution. Um, this, this guy is a, a Christian. He's a believer. But basically what he says is there are some foundational qualities we all need. But it starts with learning. And there's the five steps of influence. Remember we talked about leadership is influence. So leadership starts with learning. It goes to performing. Can you really do this stuff? I remember when I became a sales manager, I used to joke around about how those who can do and those who can't teach. So when I became a sales manager, you know, I kind of made those little jokes up about myself. Um, but ultimately, can you do? Can you do this? Are you performing? I think that's a, a step a lot of us like to get around, but ultimately got to work through, and then leading. But here's the other issue, because we know what developing leaders are, but how many of us really either aspire to or are developing leaders who are developing leaders? Now, there's a pyramid of good to great about level five leaders and all that other stuff. It's all good. I love those analogies. But this is the best one I know. Because at the end of the day, this leader-shaping talk could be called disciple-shaping. We're following Jesus Christ, and what we're doing is we're sitting at his feet and we're listening. Matthew 28, 19 tells us, go, make disciples, teach them. So for those of us who are disciples being taught, we'll be taught, and we'll listen, and we'll learn. But at some point, part of being a disciple is to turn around and start teaching to others. And you really need to know a few things before you start teaching other people. Now, I don't want to overemphasize that. Okay? I'm in the disciple-shaping business. we got curriculum everywhere. we got more books, more Bibles. In North America, you can shake a stick at, and we still have significant problems. And then I go to places like India where they don't have any resources, and they're following Jesus like crazy. So life is about learning. It isn't all academic. It isn't all from books. 
It's about experience. It's all of those things put together. But in my mind, this stair step puts it all together for me. Learn, perform, lead, develop leaders, and then develop leaders who are developing other leaders. At 53 years old, this hits me where I live. And it's the kind of thing that I personally am trying to accomplish because I feel it's part of what God had called me to do. And then quickly the rewards. You can see them there. But let me read you this. This comes from another one of those leadership books. It's called the Visionary Handbook. Now, <clears throat> it was written by Jim Taylor and Watts Wacker. How's that? Aren't you glad that isn't your name? But these are two happy pagans writing on leadership. And here's what they say. The most important characteristics of leaders who survive into the future isn't brains, although brains are nice. It isn't um, more physical strength or beauty, although those are all admirable too. The most important characteristic in leaders is faith. Faith in where, you're, where you want to go. Faith that you will get there. Faith that even if the future you arrive at isn't the one you envisioned, the journey will have been worthwhile. So, um, my sincere hope is that in some ways this encourages you because all of us are leading in some way or another. Whether it's at home, at an office, or with a group of friends, you're influencing people all the time. And as Christians, we do this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so I wish you well in all that you do. Have a great day, folks.